man at once. We are in the Gospel of John, and before we get started, let's just go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank You so much for the opportunity to share Your Word this morning. Lord, that Your holy presence would be upon this Word, that it wouldn't be my words, but Yours. Lord, not my thoughts, but Yours. Lord, I pray for those who are here that they would receive the Word, that it would be imparted to them. Lord, that it would change and move in their lives. Lord, we thank You and praise You for it. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Last week, we began in John chapter 3. And how many remember what we talked about last week? What's that? Nicodemus, right. We looked into Nicodemus. We talked about having to be born again. What it means to be born again. We looked at Nicodemus. We looked. He had a discussion with Jesus at night. He had a discussion in secret with Jesus. I'm not sure if I mentioned this last week, but uh, we've been discussing in our Wednesday night class, Theology 101 with Bobby Hansen. You guys should go. It's a, it's a good time. Amen. Uh, I'm going I'm to give you a plug. So uh, We've been discussing the burial of Jesus and the crucifixion, and I talked with Gary about this last week. Uh, before Jesus was laid in the cave, so after the crucifixion, before he was laid in the cave, two men... We talked about this in the Wednesday night class. Two men wrapped him with linens and aloes, right? We talked about this in the Wednesday night class. If you haven't been there, you should go. Amen. It's interesting to note this, that one of the two men was the owner of the burial site. His name was Joseph of Arimathea. Um, but the other man was the man who met with Jesus at night named Nicodemus helped wrap him at the end of his earthly life here. We see that Jesus meets with Nicodemus and then leaves the area. And he leaves the area with his disciples and he starts baptizing people in Judea. And he's baptizing people in Judea and it brings up a discussion with the disciples of John the Baptist. So you remember, John the Baptist had his own disciples. Those disciples were baptizing people. Jesus and his disciples come along to this area of Judea and they start baptizing people as well. So a discussion happens with the disciples of John the Baptist. It seems that Jesus was baptizing people pretty much along the same waters that John the Baptist was. Think about it this way. Think about if John the Baptist was baptizing people on one beach, Jesus would have been like the next beach over. You understand what I'm saying? Are you all with me this morning? Amen. So he's on the next beach over. And it says this. Go to the first slide here. Yes. John chapter 3, verse 25 through 26 says, Now a discussion arose between some of the John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. He's baptizing and all are going to him. Uh, most theologians say John's disciples here are worried. They're a little worried. People are leaving them to go to Jesus. People are leaving him to go to Jesus. Understand that John the Baptist was probably like the celebrity of pastors in that area. He was probably like the celebrity guy. He, he had followers. He had a following. Think today that if, if he had a church, it would be filled. If he had a church, people would, people would flock to it. But now, 
Think about it this way. If, if you're in a church and it's full, and all of a sudden an, an, another church shows up across the street, and now everybody starts leaving your church to go to that church, and the workers inside John the Baptist camp are saying, well, hold on, all these people are going to Jesus. What are we going to do? John's response to their worry shows how he understands the changing dynamic. He understands what's happening here. He says this, go to the next slide. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. This joy of mine is now complete. He says, guys, listen. Guys, listen. Here's what he says. I like this. Everything we have is from God. and We should be grateful for what we have. Amen? Amen. Everything we have is from God, and we should be grateful for what we have. This is what he says to them. But I've always told you that I'm not God. I've always told you I am not the Christ. I just came to prepare a way for Him. That's John the Baptist's role was to prepare the way for Christ. He then compares himself. This is kind of funny. He compares himself to the best man in a wedding. How many, how many have ever been the best man? Yeah? Doug, you were best man? Why didn't she marry you? If you're the best man, oh boy, yeah, you were already married. That's good. It's, it's, it's a Seinfeld joke in case you don't know. If I'm the best man, why is she marrying this guy? No. Anyway. <laughs> You've been the best man, or, or, or Bryce, you had a best man at your wedding. Who was it? Evan. It was Evan. Is that, where's Evan? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. <laughs> He's going to hear this. That's all right. So the, the job of the best man is to take care of things. For the groom, right? I mean, takes care of stuff, gets things ready, gets things prepared for him. He makes the way for him. In Jewish culture, this man would have brought the groom up and left him there. See, he compares himself to the best man at the wedding because the best man is not in the spotlight. The best man is not the, not who everybody's there to see. The best man is just kind of assisting. He's helping. Jesus is in the spotlight. The best man is there to serve the groom. Nothing more. And for John the Baptist, he says, it's a joy of mine to serve my Savior. It's a joy of mine to serve Christ. Then he states what I hope would be the theme of not just this church, but churches across the nation. He states this. Go to the next slide. He must increase, but I must decrease. Somebody say amen. Amen. He must increase. God, Jesus must increase in my life and I must decrease. That's the only way it works. He will be exalted and lifted high in this church. Amen. It's not about me. It's about Christ. Then he says this. Go next slide. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in earthly ways, but he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For whom, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The, father's, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John here, he kind of 
preaches a little bit. He gives like a mini sermon. He preaches a little bit about Christ in, in an encouraging way. He says he's above all things. He speaks the words of God. He gives without measure. And as encouraging as this is, John ends this mini sermon with these words. Go to the next slide. It says this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Amen? Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You know, I know that we live in an age of inclusivity. I know that we live in this golden age, but I don't want us to forget that God still has a standard this morning. Amen? I'm be asking you, I'm preaching better than you're responding. Amen? God still has a standard. I understand that we live in this place where everybody should be accepted everywhere, regardless of what they believe or do. But God still has a standard. He has a standard for the church. He has a standard for our lives. Whoever believes will be saved, and those who reject Christ will not see life. And this is an Old Testament The wording here is in Old Testament about the wrath of God. It's New Testament. If you don't obey the word of God, the wrath of God will remain on you. It's true. You say, well, Pastor David, isn't the New Testament supposed to be all about grace and and mercy and hallelujah and, and Jesus just came to save all? We have to respond to the Holy Spirit. We have to respond to His presence in our lives. Charles Spurgeon was a, was a man who would tell about a preacher. The preacher's name was Holy Whitfield. Now, that's a good name for a preacher, amen? His name was Holy Whitfield. He would stand, and, and while preaching, he would hold up his hands, and with tears streaming down his face, he would say these words, Oh, the wrath to come! Oh, the wrath to come! He would then pause because his emotions overcame him. It's important for us to preach the love of Christ. Amen. We want to encourage people. We want to be a church that encourages people. We want them to know that God loves them. But we should never forget that the wrath of God is real and powerful. Amen. Let me say this. Sometimes we get so focused on the carrot that we tend to forget about the stick. You know what I'm saying? How many know the carrot and the stick analogy? Sometimes we get so focused on the carrot. We are, oh, it's just all about encouraging. No, sometimes it's about warning. Sometimes it's about warning. Hey, I've done all I can do to encourage you, but now let me warn you. Unless you obey the Son of God, the wrath of God will come upon you. Our first plea should be that Christ loves them. But we can't forget about the warning of the wrath of God. Amen? Do we get it? Come, I can preach on this all day long if I need to. Do we get it? Amen. Woo! Let's move forward. Now this brings us to John chapter 4. And how many remember, uh, I preached very recently, probably just in the last six months to a year, about the woman at the well. I preached it just very recently. So I don't want to repeat my previous sermon to you right now. I just, it just, I don't want us to do that. So, uh, if you haven't heard it, 
It, uh, if you haven't been here for it, it's on podcast. You, podcast, you can check it out. It's real good. Also, uh, you can, uh, at some point, God will give me the sermon to preach again. And I'll preach it again. But right now, I want us to jump ahead a little bit. We're going to move kind of fast and furious through the next couple chapters. Because what we're going to do is we're going to get to the place to where we start to start to see the foundation and the laywork for what happens going towards Easter weekend. We're going to start moving a little fast and furious. And I, I want to warn you right now, it's going to get deep. Amen? It's going to get deep. We're going to get into some deep things and, and, and things that we want to study out and look at together. It says this in John 4, verse 46. That's where we're going to go. It says this, so he came again to Cana in Galilee. Cana, by the way, was where he had his first miracle, the water turned to wine. Amen? Where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. We find Jesus in, in Cana when this official from Capernaum comes to him. It's likely, you know, some, some translations say that the guy, he was a noble man. Some will say he was a noble man. A noble man was someone that, that likely was an official of royalty. It's likely this man was of great importance. importance. He was likely one of the officers of Herod. He had wealth and he had status. But, but how many know that when your child is sick, your wealth and your status take a back seat? How many know that, that when your child is there, it's, everything else takes a back seat? Because this man has a son who has a high fever. His son is, is near death. He's approaching death. When your child is in danger, how, how many had, had a child who was real sick? And now you just forget about everything. You want to get them as well as possible, as fast as possible, right? When your child is in danger, everything else seems to fade away. This man, he lived in Capernaum. Just so you know, Capernaum was about 20 miles from Cana. If we're looking at Israeli geography, Cana and Capernaum about 20 miles away. And you can bet that that this man had probably done everything possible within his means, within his wealth and status, to make his son well. But he heard that Jesus was in Cana. And so he starts a 20-mile trip. The 20-mile trip. You can bet that as he raced towards Cana, and I'm sure he was racing towards Cana. His son was sick. He's on, he's on the edge of death. He's racing towards Cana. His mind was on one thing. Jesus may be able to heal my son. His hope lied in what he'd heard about a man and his miracles. Amen? He arrives in Cana. He finds Jesus. And he, he likely begs him to come to Capernaum and heal his boy. Come, come with me. Look at my son. Heal my son. But Jesus doesn't go. Jesus doesn't go. Verse 48 says this. Jesus said to him, unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. Seems a little cold. Jesus says to this man, unless you see the signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. 
The man said to him, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. You know, it's interesting because Jesus can see the urgency in this man. Jesus, I'm sure this man is, is pleading with him. Pleading, Lord, Jesus, please. But Jesus doesn't go anywhere. He doesn't go where the man wants. Jesus has seen the faith of those around that area who only believe because they saw the sign or they saw the miracle. And so he says to this man, unless you see the signs and wonders, you won't believe. He's seen the faith. Their faith was anchored in sight. Their faith was anchored in what they could see. Only if you see it, you'll believe. How many know people like that? I know people like that. Only if they see it, they believe. Jesus wants our faith to be grounded, not in what we can see, but what we cannot see. Amen? We have to have faith. The official's wealth and status are laid waste at the thought of his son dying. And he pleads with Jesus. He just pleads, come, please, before he dies. Jesus then speaks to him these words. I love this. Go to the next slide. Go, your son will live. Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. He believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. He didn't see the sign. He didn't see the miracle. He believed the word and went on his way. The man believed the word. The official, he didn't see it, he didn't, but he believed it. That's the kind of faith Jesus was looking for. Amen? That's the kind of faith he was looking for. I imagine that the, the time it took him to ride back, remember, 20 miles, right? I, 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 I bet that first mile, man, his faith was on fire. I bet he's riding that first mile, and I don't know if he's on a horse or a wagon or whatever he's on, but he's going that first mile, his faith is on fire. But, but you know the enemy doesn't let that stand. You know the enemy starts whispering in your ear. You know when the Lord gives you a word, you have faith that, that can move mountains and destroy giants. But pretty soon the enemy starts to whisper, no, 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 that, that, that's probably not true. You can imagine mile one, he was full of faith, but mile two, he's probably getting a little weary of it. Mile three, he's kind of, the enemy is just talking and jabbering in his ear. Right? How many ever been there where the enemy just speaks to you? That's when you have to take the Word of God and say, no, no, no. I heard the Word of God. I have faith in the Word of God. Enemy, get behind me. Right? Yes, He's nothing to this. And I wondered how much this man wavered. I wonder how much doubt he had. I wonder if he battled in his mind the words of Jesus and the words of doubt. How many have been there? I've been there. See, this man was a real man. He was made up with real emotions. He wasn't just, he's not just a character in a story somewhere. How does our faith hold up when we don't see it happen right away? We don't see it happen right away. How does our faith hold up? Does it stay strong? Or does it sway back and forth? Most of the time, our battle is not out there. It's in here. Right? Most of the time it's in here. It's in our spirit. It's, 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 it's happening in the heavenlies. Hmm. As this man is traveling, he sees people coming towards him. I love this. I love this. He sees people coming towards him first in the distance. And then as he gets, as he starts to get closer, he starts to see who they are. They are his servants. <laughs> 
His servants are approaching him. And I imagine that all doubt went away when he saw that they're approaching him with smiles and laughter. I imagine all doubt just washed away when he saw that that there was good news. Go to the next slide. It says this. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. He was going to be, he was going to live. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, well, yesterday at the seventh hour, his fever broke. His fever left him. The, the official, he, he naturally asked this question. When did my son get better? When did he get better? When they answered him, his faith became even stronger. Why? Because of this. Go to the next slide. The father knew that the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, was the seventh hour, right? And he himself believed in all his household. The son's healing, this miracle, this faith in Christ, led him and his whole household to believe. And this it says this, now this was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. When uh, John wrote the gospel, he's speaking to those who are skeptical. He's saying, this is the second sign in Galilee. Let it lead you towards faith. Let it lead you towards Christ. It brings us now to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We're starting to fly through it here now, okay? It says this, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. But there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. How many know what a colonnade is? Hallelujah. I can teach you something this morning. We find Jesus at the pool called Bethesda. It's important to understand that uh, for many years, this place was thought to be a myth. We actually talked about this a lot on Wednesday night in our Theology 101 classes, be there. Amen? We're going to have more people there this Wednesday night. Or less, I don't know how to work. <laughs> but for, for many years, most uh, a lot of people said that this it was evidence that John had just made this up. Because they, they, they couldn't find this place. They believed it to be a myth. Uh, it it would give credence to the notion that the Bible was not true. And so it was a battle for those who were trying to prove the Bible true. John states something very specific about this pool. Uh, he states that it has five roofed colonnades. A uh, colonnade is, is better known as a portico or a porch. I mean, you know what a porch is? That's good. Five porches. And he lists this, by the sheep gate. The sheep gate is where they would bring the sheep to be cleaned for sacrifice. So it used to be called the lion gate, and it was called the sheep gate. This is the sheep gate. Now, in our Wednesday night classes, which you should attend, by the way, (laughs) Gary uh, Gary always has a saying, and it it rings true. Uh, Gary, it's time is on the side of the Christian, right? Or time is on the side of the Bible. For centuries, skeptics, skeptics claim that because this account is only found in John, because the account, now I want you to stick with me here, because the account's only found in John, it gave proof for it being written by somebody else. 
somebody with zero knowledge of Jerusalem. But here's what happened. In the 1800s, there was a guy named Conrad Schick. Say Conrad Schick. Conrad Schick, he began an archaeological dig and he found a pool. Over the next hundred years, archaeologists discovered that this pool had not one, not two, not three, not four, but five porticos. And it was located exactly where John had described it. Exactly where he had described it. What happened, in case you're wondering, this is what it looks like today. Go to the next slide. Can you see that? What happened here is they had the pool, and the pool with the five porches, and then what happened was a, a church was built on top of it. A church was built, it was called a basilica. And as that started to crumble through history, the pieces of that went into the pool. It made it very difficult to find. So over a hundred years of archaeology, and they were able to find and put together the pool of Bethesda. Time is on the side of the Christian. Amen? I love that. That's so cool. I want to go there someday. Amen? Who wants to go with me? Hey. <laughs> Woo. It's going to be a good time. Next slide. It says this, John chapter 5, 2 through 5, it says this. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Don't move forward before I ask you to. Now I want to ask, can anybody spot the error in these verses? If, you, if I've told you already, don't say it. Can anybody spot the error in these verses? There's no four. Right? Where's verse four? Interesting. Why do we have chapters and verses? We made chapters and verses to locate things in the Bible. Right? It's for location purposes. When the manuscripts were written, when letters were written, it's not as if Paul was writing a letter and he put chapter four, verse five. It's what we did to to make it easy to locate. Amen? Amen. So I don't want to scare anybody this morning or or make people think that I'm going against the Word of God uh, because I'm not. But as your pastor, it's my job to teach you how to read the Bible correctly. Amen? And teach you out of the most accurate translations. Out of the most accurate translations. When we read Scripture, I want you to listen to this carefully, When we read Scripture, we want to read it and interpret it as it was intended. Not just based according to the translation or tradition that we grew up with. How many people grew up with the King James Version of the Bible? Most, A lot of people did. Most people did, right? But let's see what King James says. How many have the King James with them right now? Bob does. Bob, King James, go to the next slide. It says this in the King James. This is the missing verses. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatever disease he had. How many ever heard this before? I've heard this story. I was raised with one of these, this story. I thought, wow, okay, an angel came and touched the water, right? Angel came and touched the water. Whoever got in the water first did it. Now, I want to, I want, I'm going to make a statement that's going to startle some people. But I, I want you to stay with me. 
I promise you this is not blasphemous or sacrilege. Amen? Gary, amen? (laughs) He's like, I'm waiting. The reason these verses are skipped in most modern translations is that they legitimately were not supposed to be there. In the King James, they're there. But legitimately, they weren't supposed to be there. And here's why. I want to explain this to you so you understand. Because people read it and it goes from verse 3 to verse 5. You say, where's verse 4? First of all, the story about the angel touching the water and stirring the waters, it wasn't true. You say, well, Pastor David, how do you know? If it was true, it would have some problems with it. If the story was true, it would have a pro- it would, there would be some problems with it. First is this. God doesn't pit sick people against each other. It's not a part of His character. It's not a part of His nature. They, they would be in a competition, and when the water was served, whoever gets in the water first gets the healing. That's not how God works. God has no partiality. But that's not how God works. Here's, it would be against his, his character. Here's what happened, in case you're interested. The translators and copyists for the King James Bible, they put the angel water story into verse 4, when in reality it should have been left out. Uh, what happened was that, uh, you know, and if you have a new King James, it actually follows suit because it just uses modern language, but it's the same, it's based off the same text. The truth is it was never a part of the original manuscripts. It was never a part of the original manuscripts of John. It says this, in some translations, it's in the footnotes. How many have it in your footnotes? Or maybe it's in brackets. Uh, if you have an Amplified Bible, I believe it's in footnotes. Uh, other Bibles, it's in brackets or something like that. And it says this, uh, what we believe to have happened, I want you to listen to this carefully, what we believe to have happened was that the copyist would have seen a footnote about the waters being troubled. The copyist, the, the, the translators for the King James, they would have seen a footnote about the waters being troubled. And what he did was he looked at it from Jewish thought. Jewish thought at the time, and he wrote it in there without likely being aware of what it meant when the water was stirred. There's a belief about the water that was, it was being troubled, but here's the interesting thing. This belief was based on a cult. There was a cult, a pagan Greek cult, and they worshipped, listen to this, a Greek god of healing named Asclepius. I can't, I can't repeat that. Asclepius. Can you say Asclepius? Most scholars agree that the cult, well, here's what would happen. The cult leaders would open up the upper basin. It would go into the lower basin and cause a stirring of the water. And they would use this to push their agenda that there was healing in the pool. They made these healing pools all around the area. They made up these healing pools as part of the cult. In fact, one of the, uh, it's just the, one of the many pools built for that reason. It's clear from translation, and biblical archaeology, that the story of an angel touching water was never real. It never took place. It was a myth. And you say this, Pastor David, hold on a second. What you're telling me, especially if you grew up with the New King James or the King James Bible, what you're telling me is that a part of the Bible that I believe to be true isn't true. Is that what you're telling me? Yes. But I want to explain it with this. You say, Pastor David, doesn't our doesn't that take away from the truth of the Bible? No, it doesn't. Because here's the interesting thing. We don't put our faith in a translation. 
We are put, we are gathering our correct information from the correct source. That's what we don't want to, we don't want to go based off, off of tradition or translation. Amen? Amen? We don't want to go just based off tradition. We want the source that the Holy Spirit inspired. We want the original manuscripts as close to that as we possibly can. I know some are looking at me like, oh boy, it's time to find another. No. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? If you don't, do you, you under, Bob, you know what I'm saying? Hallelujah. Thank you, Bob, for that. No. I want to say this though. Rest assured, most modern translations, if you have a modern translation, they differ very, very, very little from what's uh, the original manuscripts. We want, to, we want to go based off the original manuscripts, amen? We want to go based off the Bible as it was intended to be read, as the Holy Spirit inspired it, not as a copyist or a translator may have made a mistake or may have put something in there that wasn't supposed to be. And so it's my job as a pastor to figure those things out. It's my job as a pastor to teach you to correct, correctly to rightly divide the Word of God. Amen? Yeah. Amen. All right. How many are ready to get past that? Hallelujah. I don't want there to be any confusion about this accountant, John, because the thing is this. What's clear is the man that's at the pool believes it. The man at the pool believes that if there's a stirring in the water, if he gets in first, he's going to get healed. He believes it because of this cult at the time. And so he's there, he's waiting for something to happen. He's waiting for for it to happen. And it says this in verse 6. Go to the next slide. It says this. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? This is a curious question. Do you want to be healed? How many people know that some people don't want to be healed? Did you know that? Some people don't want to be healed. In a lot of cases, it brings them attention. It brings them pity. In some cases, it brings them money. Right? Some people don't want to be healed. They don't, they don't want that to leave their lives. They're addicted to the attention. They're addicted to their sickness. In fact, some people will make up diseases. Some people will pretend to be crippled, will pretend to have an ailment in order to, to get money and attention and pity. Amen? What are they called? Hypochondriacs. How many know a hypochondriac? How many say I'm married to a hypochondriac? I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I love you, honey. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No. If any of them, she might say that about me. Oh. Uh, but it's true that there are some people who pretend to be sick. So Jesus says, do you want to be healed? The man, it's clear right away, this man wants a healing. He's been waiting to get in this pool. He doesn't know that's because of a cold and all this other stuff. He just wants the stirring of the water. He wants to get in the pool. He wants his healing. And the sick man answered this way. He says this. Go to the next slide. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water's stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Now, again, if the, if the uh, story of the angel and the water and the stirring had been true, Jesus just could have kicked him in the water. Right? All right, we see the stirring. All right, it's your turn. Boop. There's your healing. No, that's not. It's kind of funny, right? Christ is laughing. Oh, hey, the water's stirring. Okay. How many ever pushed somebody in a pool before? Yeah. It's great. 
here's the interesting thing. The man had put his faith in the pagan Greek cult story of the water. He put his faith in this water stirring. He wasn't putting his faith in God. He was putting his faith that, that somehow God gave an angel the ability to come down and touch the water and the water was filled with miraculous power. Now, none of it's nonsensical. I understand there's peculiar stories in the Bible. There's things that don't make sense. There's miracles that, that we don't sometimes understand. But it usually goes along the sense of sense. It's within God's character. It's within God's nature. This is simply not. So Jesus looks at him and says these words. Go to the next slide. It says this. I love this. Get up, take your bed, and walk. Well, let me pray over you for a half hour first. No, no. Well, let me, let me, you know, speak into your life for a little while. No, no. Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. That day was the Sabbath. How many ever, how many ever, uh, I'll just tell you my story if that's okay. I was, uh, at my church growing up and there was a, uh, boy there who jumped from the stage. We had a, much, a higher stage. It was probably right about here. And he jumped and he twisted his ankle when he jumped. I think he tried to do a flip or something like that. Yeah. So he tried to do a flip. It was after service. And so people gathered around him. Now, how many know after service, what normally do people do? Go to lunch. I was hungry. Come on. Don't laugh on me. How many, after this, we're going to go to lunch. Amen. So uh, the kid jumps, and instead of going to lunch, all these people gather around him. And a woman who, who had a very good heart, she really, she did. She loved the Lord, but, but she wanted to pray over him. I said, absolutely, let's pray over him. And she started to pray over him, and a minute went by, and two minutes went by, and five minutes went by. Pretty soon we were going into ten minutes. And, and she wasn't speaking healing over him. She was just like, I just want you to know Jesus loves you. And just, just so you know, Jesus loves you. And it was just this more and more and more. And I looked at a buddy. I was like, is it time to eat yet? <laughs> at what point do we stop using words and start using the power of God within us and saying, in Jesus' name, get up, take your bed, get that ankle, come on. Get up, take up your bed, walk away. I don't need, I don't, sometimes we don't need a half an hour prayer about how much God loves us. Come on, sometimes we just need the power of God to touch our lives. Amen? <laughs> I said it and people looked at me like I cussed or something. I was like, isn't it time to eat yet? And people were like, oh, I'm offended. I'm, you're offended. I bet the Holy Spirit's offended that you didn't just call down healing in the first place. That's why I would get in trouble when I was younger. I just, I imagine that when Jesus talked to this man, people must have heard him and they must have thought he was crazy. In fact, I imagine that the man may have thought Jesus was crazy. The man himself may have thought Jesus was crazy, but Jesus, man, he says it so earnestly. Get up, take up your bed and walk. That the man begins to try. I love this. That as he begins to try, as he, as he goes to move, 
His faith is strengthened and his body responds to the healing. His body responds to the healing and his newfound strength allows him to pick up his bed mat and walk away. This newfound strength to pick up his bed mat and walk away. And I want to give you an idea of the sense of absurdity that was so stringent in the following of the law of the Jews. The absurdity. It says this. I, this is so ridiculous. Go next slide. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, hey, it's a Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. And the man answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. He left the place. As there was a crowd in that place. Can, uh, the, the absurd, this is just ridiculous. It says this, go to the next slide. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This is how messed up they were. Instead of rejoicing in the miracle of this man being healed, they go after him because he's carrying his bed mat. Instead of, I mean, this guy was 38 years. He's an invalid. He's waiting by the pool. He's trying to get a healing. Jesus comes along, speaks healing into his life. He carries his bed mat. The Jews, first thing they say is, you might want to put that down. How absurd is this? We get, we get so focused on protocol sometimes that we missed out on the move of God. Sometimes we get so focused on protocol, we can miss out on the move of God. We don't want to do that in our lives, amen? amen. This is what the Jews were notorious for. Rules and regulations. It meant everything to them. And, and, and for some people, for some people, even to this day, these rules are followed. To give you an idea of how absurd is this, Absurd, uh, absurd this is. I'm going to take some water. To give you an idea of how messed up this is, I want to share a story with you. In April of 1992, April of 1992, there was a, there was a news item. And it said this, tenants let three apartments burn. In the Orthodox neighborhood in Israel, these three apartments burned to the ground when they asked the rabbi whether or not a telephone call to the fire department on the Sabbath would violate Jewish law. Observant Jews are forbidden to use the phone on the Sabbath because doing so would break the electrical current, which is considered a form of work. It took the rabbi half an hour to decide yes. It took the rabbi a half an hour to decide, yeah, go ahead and make the call. The fire started in one apartment, but by the time the rabbi decided, the fire had spread into two neighboring apartments, burning to the ground. It's this kind of ridiculous orthodoxy that Jesus is going against. It's this kind of ridiculous protocol and rules, and you're missing out on the Spirit of God. And this is what Jesus is going against. They go to Jesus, they ask Him, why was this done on the Sabbath? And Jesus answers this way, my father is working until now, and I am working. It's the Sabbath. My father's working till now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, 
Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. We begin to see the start of the events that will lead us towards the crucifixion. We begin to see that Jesus is making it clear who he is. And for that, he will pay the price for all of us. Amen? Amen. Jenny, if you can come forward. This morning, if you could stand. Continue through the book of John. I know it's some deep stuff. I know we're moving kind of at a faster pace now, but but God, I just pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to them. Throughout this next week, Lord, just speak deeper into their lives about it. Lord, I thank You that You've given us such a tremendous group of family to come together and worship You. Lord, I pray that You would bless them. Lord, that You would keep them. Lord, that You would cause Your face to shine down upon them. And Lord, I pray that You would give them rest. In Jesus' name, Amen. God bless you guys. We love you. Have a great week. Remember, next week, your clocks go spring forward. And we'll see you Wednesday night at Theology 101. Amen? God bless you guys.